right, so welcome back to Multifamily Live. Welcome back. Great to see you guys. So excited to be here. I have a tremendous guest today, Stefan Zetkoff. Hey, Stefan, how you doing? Hey, Jason, good. How are you? Thanks for good. having me. I'm excited to have you on the show today because you come action-packed, data-driven. We uh, know a lot of what you're going to get into here, so we can't wait to dive in. And a little bit about Stefan is he's the founder of RealtyQuant, a company that brings data-driven and quantitative techniques to the real estate industry. He's on a mission to add industry value through education, investment, technology, and analytics. Financial engineer turned multifamily investor, analytics speaker, and live webinar host. He's got a master's degree in financial engineering from Columbia University, and during his finance career, managed over $90 billion of derivatives portfolio jointly with his colleagues. Been featured on multiple podcasts, webinars, including Elevate, Best Ever Real Estate Show, The Apartment Guys, host of Finance Meets Real Estate webinar series, and well, welcome to the show. So we are ready to dive in here ready to talk market analytics. Uh, you, you hold yourself here in New York today. So give us a little more context. Uh, talk to us about RealtyQuant, why that was the driver for you to move into this space and really take hold of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so like you mentioned, I had a career in finance before for about a decade. Um, so I w- used to like trade derivatives for, a, you know, for a you know, large financial institution. And I recently in the past like few years, like two, two, three years transitioned into the multi, like small multi-family space, like in the New York City area. So I've been an investor. I've done uh, like seven projects myself. I focus on like condominium conversions, um, like in places like downtown Georgia City, Weehawken, uh, places like that. I'm sure you know the area well. You used to live in um, in New Jersey. And I've been transitioning more into the commercial multifamily space uh, recently and searching for my first deal there. That's fantastic. Why the parallel um, from what you were doing into the multifamily space would have been some of the key things you've been looking at to said, okay, I'm going to transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I've been like, uh, like you mentioned, I've also like founded, like I've been a real estate entrepreneur as well. So besides an investor, so I founded like Realty Quant, which is a kind of an analytics shop, you know, an analytics company. So I did like um, different modeling and analysis in the multifamily space. And so it kind of led me to, um, you know, naturally to this transition and like having like better understanding of various markets, um, having understanding of kind of how to model commercial multifamily value-add off-market at scale. So that's like a model that we've been um, working on releasing as a product um, at my company. And so that kind of led me to, okay, I mean, you know, in the obvious like scaling reasons that others have, you know, it's easier to uh, to scale in commercial, et cetera. So that led me to transition um, into this space. Noting that you've been doing projects in New York, New York City, uh, out to Weehawken, Jersey City, are you now, as you transition into the multifamily space, have you now transitioned to different markets or, or how is this yeah. next step looking? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for myself, um, and that like would depend on everyone's risk tolerance, I would say at this point in the market cycle. Um, but for me, that's been like um, more the Midwest. I mean, I've been working towards the South as well. And um, and um, yeah, so it's been like Kentucky, Indiana, um, Ohio, like places like that. What have been some of the drivers saying that those are the markets we're going to go into? I actually, our, our first large multifamily was in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, funny enough, our, uh, our last New Jersey project was actually, you know, I believe, in the Heights. So in Jersey City, yeah. in the Heights area. So, so we, we follow a, a similar track of where we've been and where we're going. 
Um, right. I mean, I, I mean, as uh, you well know, and, and and I've listened to your content, Jason, as well. The you know the Northeast is like pretty depressed, and it's been really like that for mm. you know for a long time. Actually, if we take look outside of the big cities like New York City, it's actually been for perhaps like seventy years. You know, with some of the manufacturing um, and the kind of jobs leaving. Uh, like back in the 50s and then 70s, etc. So, so it's really, um, you know, like the Northeast, you know, not having a high appeal for commercial multifamily is kind of, you know, it's, it's something that um, I'm sure many of your audience are, are acquainted with and it's, you know, investing to the South and West. But now um, my, at my company, Realty Council, one thing that I did um, at the beginning of COVID, I did um, a study on market valuations. And it's quite interesting since I know like most multifamily operators, they pick, markets on the basis of kind of appreciation potential. So, you know, they, we, we would look at like job growth, population growth, et cetera. But what I actually did is kind of a study of downside risk and trying to understand, okay, what if, what is the downside risk in all those markets in the event we hit um, like peak of cycle? And this is the concept of market valuation. So it's really to derive like is the market, you know, X percent over under fairly valued, you know, is it sure. 10% over and things like that. And, um, and so I did a study uh, based on the global financial crisis at the time. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a financial engineer, like by background. So that kind of was like some of my interest. And I did it at the beginning of COVID. And um, it was interesting. Um, it was interesting actually to see at the state level, um, if one took like affordability deviations, like it's a simple measure, like price income ratio deviations from historical levels, one would have predicted in magnitude, like the state level drops to like 85% um, correlation. So that's like quite interesting. So that's like one thing that, uh, you know, I, I use in my own investment. And then I, at Realty Quant, we publish it as we have the data for the 2,700 US counties. And we say, okay, are they, you know, like, 10% overvalued, undervalued, things like that. And so Western markets for me at this point is just not exactly my risk tolerance. Now, I don't like discourage people from investment, investing there, but especially, um, so I started, especially in 2021, some of those metrics kind of jumped up with inflation. And I can talk to that as well since, um, yeah. right. And, and I know like many investors, they would say, I know like, Inflation is good for hard assets. That's definitely the case. It has brought like massive appreciation uh, for for us, you know, for investors and operators at the current time. Uh, but it also can render your market overvalued at some point. So that's like some of the risks of when like asset inflation in, in exceeds wage inflation. And so, um, I mean, yeah, just to give like some numbers, I guess, like just no, that, that, that's good because what I want you to touch on that spot is that yeah, yeah. asset inflation, of course, increases past wage inflation. But like, and so the big, the big through line there is that, you know, the prices, everything's going up, right? Rent, everything's going to go up in a point here, but people aren't making enough money to keep up, right? So although it looks good on the real estate side, everything's going up. Well, well at a certain point, you know, if you have a renter and they're paying $700 of rent, now it's going to go up. You're going to try and go to a thousand. Typically, that same renter profile is not going to be able to say, Oh, I'm good at that, right? Because they're living paycheck to paycheck, or you know, their hours like they're just not going to be able to make up that gap, right? So, um, talk more to that because it's really interesting to, to hear that. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's like why does it matter? Let's say like the wage, that sort of this kind of wages to asset disparity. Now, it sounds intuitive that if you know things are very expensive, then people cannot afford it, but it's not like so obvious because if you have like places like San Francisco and you have like 
they're like very high or like very woke on the, on the affordability like and so forth where you know housing is really expensive relative to wages and i don't know their exact like home price to meet to personal income ratio you know if it's 15 or it's 20 or so forth but but you know it's 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 fairly up there and so but the, the importance of it is not uh, in that per se it becomes it have it starts to be important once it deviates from its historical levels so for example and i was um i was at some events like at the beginning of covid and i was sharing how san francisco even though like super expensive and it wouldn't be a surprise since it's not an attractive market, obviously, at the current time, but it was actually undervalued. So it was actually undervalued. And that's, you know, in part due to the low investor appetite and you yeah. know, the, the negative net migration in California and so on and so forth. But the reality was you, you have a place that is extremely not affordable, you know, at a very high price income ratio, but that's not what's driving its potential downside risk. Downside risk in real estate seems to stem mostly from deviations in affordability. So when it jumps up above a, above a prior level. And so now those deviations, some of them can be fundamental and meaningful because if we take, let's say again, like using San Francisco as an example, and if it's um, in the past, maybe in fifties or whatever, if, if maybe it had a price income ratio, like, and again, price income meaning home price to uh, personal income over there of let's say five. And then gradually uh, as housing shortage develops, you know, like there's more and more, more housing shortage in the city and mm -hmm. that ratio shifts up. And then at some point it's at 15, 20. Um, but again, that's uh, doesn't, if that happens in a gradual way, consistent with the housing uh, population to housing supply ratios for it, then that's going to be like meaningful and fundamental. And that's, that market is not overvalued. And that was the case for San Francisco at the beginning of COVID. So essentially, um, you know, very expensive still uh, and very, um, mm, and it has a degree of housing shortage, but it's all metrics that are kind of reflected in the price. And even to a point that San Francisco is like 5% undervalued at the time. And I'm not sure at the current time, it's something around the same percentage, you know, since um, it's obviously, you know, it had, it had even a negative trend obviously during COVID. Um, but that's, um, so that's uh, like, that's like some of the, some of the analysis there. And like to clarify, like in this study of downside risk, I looked at like different measures at the time. I was looking for closure rates, you know, like if you know, like a company called Atom Data Solutions is like the main like foreclosure um, data vendor in, in the US. And I was looking at like other like price volatility, risk adjusted returns, things like that. They were not very predictive downside risk. It's like I can give examples to places. Um, if we, we use, for example, like some of the very poor states like West Virginia. And so forth. So they have very foreclosure data was not predictive of downside risk. Not predictive. Yeah, that is quite interesting because I was. Yeah, at, yeah that's quite interesting because I was looking at like even at the beginning of COVID, there were some articles. What are some places that have like the highest, um, you know, potential for downturn during the, um, you know, if COVID was to mark the peak of the cycle, let's say, mm -hmm. and so uh, which didn't happen, right? But but so and so that study was looking at. Um, was actually showing some counties in New Jersey. Um, and there was, for example, even Sussex County was up there, you know. Sure. And then simultaneously was showing some counties in Florida and uh, Illinois and so forth. But then um, in, a, uh, in a broader kind of study, like the one that they do, like looking at more metrics, you, one would see that actually those are very different regions. So New Jersey is a place that is undervalued at the time. It does have high for it's it, it's been the top foreclosure state for a few years, like five five six years in a row, 
but simultaneously, it's not a desired region. It's undervalued. Um, you know, it's only Hudson County. It's kind of fairly valued. Um, but the rest of it is pretty much undervalued. And those um, regions, they, uh, they didn't drop even during the global financial crisis. Right? So during global financial crisis, there were 10 states that were undervalued. In fact, Texas was undervalued at the time. It's very interesting. Hmm. And so Texas was, uh, was 5% undervalued. And it experienced only a 4% drop. Um, and actually, the 4% was the average drop across all, all those 10 states, which were undervalued. So it was really minor, really minor. And on the other end of the spectrum, there were places like California, Florida, Nevada, and um, Arizona, which dropped like 40 to 60%. But that was actually roughly the percentage of their overvaluation in affordability terms. Mm. So it's quite interesting. It was very well aligned. And, um, and, and there were people at the time, for example, uh, I've spoken to um, Vinny Chopra at my webinar, who and I know he did his first syndication in 2008, um, and it, it did really well as a project. Uh, but one reason is uh, on the market side, let's say, um, other than being a good project, I'm sure that the property itself on the market side, it didn't, uh, it actually, it didn't experience any drop. Like he was, he was in an under, undervalued county in an undervalued state at the time. And that's a state that, as we know, has been one of the booming performers um, during the subsequent market cycle. And so, so that's been like interesting. And um, yeah, I can share also what I see now if people are curious. Yeah, I'd love it to fast forward to today because I think it's really yeah. obvious. You know, of course, we and we've seen it play out, right? The Florida's of the world, the Texas of the world. We've seen it play out of, of how they've now transcended through into today. Um, you know, I'm curious, even with COVID, that just the way that um, San Francisco was outlined. But, you know, you, you talked earlier about your move into Kentucky, into Indiana, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm curious why those are the driver's markets, like what's pushing them as the key piece or the key recipe to say these are unvalued or undervalued markets. And beyond that, of course, there's the, you know, you spoke to New Jersey where, you know, mm-hmm. Hudson is really the driver in New Jersey, but in regards to, of course, a, a Kentucky and an Indiana, is it the yeah. state in general you're looking at or like where, or, or specifically counties or how are you dissecting this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, of course it's specific markets in those states. And I mean, like you mentioned, we have you uh, in Kentucky um, and so forth. But really, if we would like take a broader view, um, the Midwest is currently, um, I wouldn't even say it's undervalued already, like with inflation, it's kind of fairly valued. And then the Northeast is undervalued, broadly speaking. And then the South is overvalued, but not super much, just like high level discussion. And then the West, um, specifically five states, I would say, um, like Arizona, well, Idaho is number one. So Idaho is the most over in this framework. And again, like this is just a framework, but that's a framework to keep in mind that correlated 85% to the actual declines past the global financial crisis. So now we can think it can be different now. It's possible. Yeah. And I can discuss like what could drive that because global financial crisis was a complete correction scenario where basically every county almost in the country, like 85% of the county's price is corrected. And you can have a definition of what it means that they correct it, let's say above a certain percentage, um, you know, like decline and, and, and so forth. But, you know, what's, um, what's interesting is that because most of the time, the, the hardest thing right yes. now is that we, we speak in, in all encompassing, right? And so, oh, are we in a bubble? And, and the thing that, for, that many forget is that like 
we have a 50, we have all these states here. We have all these different parts, right? We have all these different moving pieces. You can't talk about this because you see it all. It, it can be on region, it can be counties, it can be local, it can be national, right? So to talk now that we're looking as the, the Northeast, right? With all of the movement out of it, all the negative press, all the push of drivers actually looks to be undervalued. And then um, I, I would say potentially not surprising the West is overvalued. I guess you said Idaho, I would figure Arizona, potentially into California and what would be the other two that might be overvalued, like a Washington? California is fairly valuable. That's the only, uh, yeah, that's just because, you know, like, so the negative migration and so forth. Yeah. Again, like, um, yeah, it's not a, like, if a place, and again, like, we have, I have this at the county level, one can do the zip code level as well, if one wants to put the work for it, so to say. Sure. But it's really, um, you know, but, but yeah, it's really, um, well, in Western markets, um, well, like I said, Idaho is, uh, seems to be the leader at the current time. And um, if some of your audience listens to Neil Bauer as an example, um, I, I know he shared like Boise in Idaho is the most, the best performing city this market cycle. So that's just price history. That's easy to see. I do see the same actually. So out of like 800 cities with more than 50,000 population, Boise is at the very top. So that is correct. Um, but at the same time, Boise was actually, even at the beginning of COVID, I was, um, at some events where I was sharing that Boise was already overvalued, mm. uh, like about 30%. And it's actually has jumped to like 47% in this framework. And this kind of a correlation study, it doesn't mean its drop is going to be exactly that high. You know, it could be 30% on the same or something. It's kind of a correlation study. But, but again, it's, Mm, it is the most overvalued city in this framework in, in the U.S. So could it be that, you know, we pick up, of course, you know, 2024, 2025, we start looking at that, you know, of course, um, supply starts to find its way back towards demand as it interest rates. What, what could find the biggest curve to, to change that where we see the, the drivers that are pushing Boise today? What could we see that could have the biggest impact to change the narrative of what's happening in the market? Yeah, I mean, just first first thing to mention, so this is based on 20 years back history of valuation. So this is kind of a deviation from a 20-year history. So it's not a very trivial, it's not like something that just like, happened instantly. But but it, but at the same time, yes, the, most of the contribution is just like very recent. And so, yes, to your point, what could change it? Well, if wages, wage inflation could change it, for example, mm-hmm. or population and you know like some people would say well it's a very Idaho is exploding and it's really booming that is true but it could also be booming to the same degree to which prices are appreciating that was the case in Denver so yeah. Denver at the beginning of COVID uh, was a top five performing city and actually um, in the same study it was at zero percent was fairly valued it's mm. quite it was like if I was living in Denver I would be thinking well that's like a crazy bubble prices have exploded here but actually, it's uh, fundamentals. And when I say fundamentals, it's really at least to the, you know, like every study is limited to the extent, right? So to, to the extent of the study that I'm doing, it's really fundamentals are um, income, population, and housing supply. So, so in those three, you know, like, so Denver at the time was fairly valued and has gone like with inflation a, a little bit overvalued now. Um, but, um, but still, it's a very different dynamic. And so, and so with Boise, it's really like if wages catch up, you know, if all the fundamentals or if population to housing supply ratios, they move in, in a correspondent way that, um, that some of that overvaluation resolves. Now, there are different scenarios. It doesn't mean it's going to correct. It's not like old doomsday and so forth. It's, by the way, Boise is also my top uh, like one-year forecast, I also do some price forecasting like that for myself. And so my one-year 
price forecast is the highest for Boise too. So I'm not bearish on Boise. If we stay in the same market cycle, those overvalued markets are going to do the best. That is what the data shows because that there's momentum. So like all those Western markets that are doing really well, they will continue doing really well. But simultaneously, they have this downside risk that they carry. So then that becomes right. a question. Yeah, it just becomes a question now. What's your risk tolerance? Do you want to go... Um, well, let's say, let's take Arizona as an example. So um, Arizona in 2021, and let's, or Phoenix. Um, so let's say in 2021, inflation really spiked, as we know. Sure. And so um, in the first half, um, first half of the year, Arizona prices at the state level were up 16%. For Phoenix, even more. And we heard like, oh, the rent growth and like, you know, like it's been an extremely profitable time, right? And all the rent growth uh, also double digit, et cetera. And so, but incomes grew by 1% only in the mm. first month. So this is kind of, it becomes an issue. And Arizona valuations that were actually around 15% uh, for the past four years, since 2017, they kind of doubled and they went to like 30%. So that's kind of, that's been what's happening in 2021. Because I was at the beginning of COVID again, just because that's kind of when I started with this thing. Um, you know, when I go to an event, like my narrative was U.S. real estate is fairly volatile. And to your point, of course, every different market, state, uh, et cetera, is, is different. I agree. But if we make like a broad statement for U.S., was kind of fairly volatile. It was actually consistent with some other studies. There is a study for the Atlantic University. There is a study by Bloomberg Economics. So Bloomberg Economics, they publish a study for different countries. And they were uh, showing in 2019 and up to the beginning of 2021, in fact. U.S. real estate is fairly valued, and there was Canada. It's very overvalued. Canada is kind of seems to be in a in a bubble in a way, and then there was Scandinavia, like Sweden, and then New Zealand, New Zealand, and Australia, and then to some extent, uh, but yeah, but the U.S. was a different story, and that's it was even somewhat consistent with investor intuition. We were never seeing something. I mean, people will complain, oh, we cannot can't find deals. You know, it's hard to find deals. There's this narrative even in the Northeast. Which is strange, right? Because the Northeast is undesired. It's um, you know, it's not like a place where people want to be. But people feel that even the Northeast is perhaps overvalued, which is not correct. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and so there are those narratives, but it didn't feel as a bubble as you know this kind of very high, you know, like extremely high appreciation. But in 2021, this changed, and um, it's a, di a different. Another example, let's say Texas and Florida, right? So the main main multifamily markets can say like the big states that. Uh, for multifamily. So they were valuations in that, that framework are pretty consistent usually in normal times. So they stayed between 2017, sorry, 2017 to 2020 for four years, quarter after quarter. They were always within the eight to 10% range, positive. Their desired market, so they were kind of like slightly, slightly overvalued code, but there's no, I mean, it's like normal, normal kind of valuation, positive eight to 10% for four years consistently. And now in 2021, and that's nothing like dooms you and so forth, since I'm, I'm an investor myself, I, I'm sorry, I don't want like to um, kind of the market to not do well, but in a way um, in 2021, it was um, doubling of those numbers. So they went to like 17, 18%. And, and that, so, that, so that's been like some of the, the contribution of, of inflation. The one way it can resolve is if wages catch up, like we said. So I'm kind of hoping for that to an extent, like it seems, um, but the recent data by Bureau of Economic Analysis came out for the, the 
the last quarter of 2021, since it's kind of lagging by a quarter. And so um, it came out and it's again 1% income growth. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not, uh, doesn't seem to be there. And the prices in, um, so in Florida in the last quarter, price growth was five and a half percent. And it's just 1% income growth. So that's going to drive it even further. You know, when you recap this, it, it's it's so interesting, but it, it when you think of it in common sense, right? If everything keeps increasing, we can't keep up on the wages. It puts us in this hard, such a hard place for seeing this continue to drive out, right? And mm-hmm. right now, from a holistic point, uh, looking at, of course, the Midwest, right? We, we can find some, we find our value, the Southeast. Uh, if you want more risk tolerance, right? We still potentially have a lot of runway that's going to continue to happen on the West Coast. However, you have, of course, the inherent downside risk um, that that is imposed on it. And then the East Coast, funny is enough, um, as it looks right now, um, even though no one wants to be there, right? It, it is an, in its own way, undervalued, right? And typically that's the point, right? It's that um, you run from the fear section right now, but ultimately usually you see a lot always um, come back to those areas once people snap out of it, right? And a lot of things have always run off New York City. And so it's hard to ever keep New York City down as they say it. So Stefan, this is truly interesting. I love hearing how you're building this into you and your business and really just your philosophy on investing. Um, For everyone that would love to connect more with you, learn about RealtyQuant, see your webinars, what's the best way to reach out and find you? Yes. uh, Yeah, and it's been a pleasure, Jason, as well. Um, So the best way to reach me is my website, RealtyQuant.com. Also, I have a YouTube channel, Finance Meets Real Estate on YouTube. Those nice. are the best ways. Nice. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this great data, gives the listeners just a ton to think about, a ton of perspective for you as you are looking into the future, into where you're going with your investment philosophy. Thank you to all of you for always listening. Like what you hear, please go down there and hit that subscribe button. Give us a like and follow. We always love to hear from you. We'll talk to you shortly.